Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6? I forgot to look up the page number, uh, but it's Luke chapter 6. Uh, so if somebody finds it in the Red Pew Bible and wants to shout it out. 1033. And we're going to break into uh, one of the most famous speeches or sermons that Jesus ever shared. It's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew records a much fuller uh, and detailed version in his gospel, but Luke also includes some of it in one chapter of his. For anyone visiting, as Paul has said, this is, a, this is the third part of a new series called More Than a Comma, which sets out to engage with the life, teaching, and example of Jesus. The, the reason for that title, sorry to go over it again for those who haven't been here, but for example, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, we discover that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried and rose again. The whole idea that the life of Jesus was reduced to a comma in the Apostles' Creed. 33 years condensed to a punctuation mark. And so the purpose of this series is to kind of like raise uh, that missing middle bit and look again at some of the teaching uh, of, of Jesus. And the purpose of doing that, in a word, is really discipleship. That's the reason for doing it. Uh, because many of us here, uh, I'm going to take it the vast majority of people here, have chosen to follow Jesus. Chosen to commit their lives to him. Chosen to seek God's kingdom first and foremost. And therefore, we, we all recognize the need and the calling to walk as Jesus walked. Whoever claims to live in God, says the Apostle John in his letter, must walk as Christ walked. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to allow God, by his Holy Spirit, to form us, to conform us, to transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. I'm going to kind of take it that, that is, take it that is read. That if you're a Christian, that is your desire to become more Christ-like in character, in what you say, in the attitude you have, in your behavior. And on Sunday nights, uh, we, we kind of want to hear and consider again what Jesus said to his first disciples about what was involved in being a disciple. And in Luke 6, we encounter some of the most radical revolutionary, countercultural, and quite honestly disturbing and seemingly impossible teaching Jesus ever shared. Regarding what does it actually mean? Or not so much what does it mean. What does it actually look like to be a Christ follower? Here is what makes us different. Here is what sets us apart. Here is what clarifies in no uncertain terms that the call to discipleship is not for the faint-hearted. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not comforting. There is a sense of, do you dare to be a disciple? Here, in this teaching, we discover that following Jesus really does mean, really does involve Denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following him. We live to the beat of an altogether different drum. If you like, we dance to a totally alternative rhythm that always 
seems slightly out of step with the world in which we live in. Now the teaching that we are going to explore and that we are going to listen to is very familiar. I will guarantee you we've all heard it before. We can quote it. We like the idea of it, but I'll also guarantee that most of us recognize and we accept the difficulty that comes with it. And so there tends to be three ways of dealing with this teaching, kind of three ways to respond to it. The first is you avoid it. Second, you decide that it's far too idealistic and therefore it's really only for hardcore Christians. Thirdly, you wrestle with the implications and you pursue the intention. I want to kind of suggest most people avoid this bit. At least that's how it seems. Now before we read it, and and don't worry, we are going to get there in a moment, but let me share two things about these instructions. Two particularly astonishing things about them that has been identified by by one commentator, and, and I totally get what he's saying. The first astonishing thing is these instructions are simple. They're clear, they're obvious, they're direct, they're memorable. You don't need to do lots of background reading. You don't need to dig too deep into meanings and context. You don't need to engage in intensive or extensive study. These instructions are simple, straightforward, understandable. Second astonishing thing, there's scarcity. How many people actually live like this? How many communities do we know where these guidelines dictate? How many of us embrace this way of life? Is there a gap between what so many Christians say they believe and how they actually live when it comes to this? specific teaching. Are these instructions still relevant or has God moved the goalposts or worse still, has God actually changed? So let's read it together. Luke 6, 27 to 36 and let's stand. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. Someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect a repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners 
expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Then you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the uh, ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Take a seat. I, uh, I don't know about you, but I find the great commandment a big enough challenge without adding this bit. I mean, loving God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, loving my neighbor as myself, well, that's a stretch. really is. That's a stretch. It's tough at times, particularly the second part, the loving your neighbor as yourself. But the idea of also loving my enemy, well, surely that takes this into a completely different stratosphere. Now, maybe enemies were included in that term neighbor, And that is why Jesus told us the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to the question, who is my neighbor? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But either way, this is a massive, major discipleship expectation or command. It's huge. What do we do with it? Whenever Matthew records this teaching... He puts it like this. You have heard it said, and for those who were here during the series, David McMillan uh, took us through that this should resonate. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Jesus, as ever, pushes us further, takes us deeper, calls us higher. And note, this is not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not some good advice. It's not even a plea. In both Matthew and Luke, it's an explicit command. Love your enemies. Let me read you a short extract from Martin Luther King Jr.'s essay entitled, Love Your Enemies. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will. We shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail. We shall still love you. Bomb our homes. Threaten our children. We shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour. Beat us and leave us half dead. And we shall still love you. And I kind of want to go seriously. Seriously? Like, how do you react to those words from Martin Luther King Jr.? How do you react to this teaching of Jesus, love your enemies? You see, part of me wants to cover my ears. Which is why I find the opening phrase of verse 27, at least in my translation, the the TNIV, quite disarming. Now, to you who are listening... To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies because there's, a, there's a, clearly a temptation, there's a tendency to tune out at this point in the teaching of Jesus. To press the mute button, 
to stop listening for a while and then we'll pick it up again after he's finished this bit. Jesus says to those of you who are listening, love your enemies. Problem is you can't cherry pick. You can't opt in and opt out. You can't be selective when it comes to following Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. And so we've got to take it on board. Out of the three options I suggested at the start, really option three is our only option. We've got to consider the implications. But what exactly does it mean? What does loving your enemy look like? Well, Jesus tells us. But before we get there, Jesus defines an enemy in three ways. But even before we go there, let me say something about the difficulty there is with this. This is hard teaching. This is tough love we're talking about. Tough, that is, for the person who's faced with the challenge to love an enemy. And I do not want to minimize, and I certainly don't believe God does, the very real dilemma that many people face with this teaching. During the week, I read again about the Reverend Julie Nicholson. I don't know if that name or her face means anything to anyone this evening. I don't know her. But as I've prepared for tonight, I've reread a little of her story and I found it sobering, honest, and so helpful. Julie Nicholson's daughter, Jenny, who was 24, was killed by a suicide bomber on the Edgware Road in London on the 7th of July, 2005. And at the time, Julie Nicholson was the vicar of St. Aidan and St. George's Church in Bristol, but she resigned. And her resignation attracted the headlines. She became known as the vicar who, quote, couldn't forgive. She became known as the minister who lost her faith. Now, as you read her story, and she's given a number of interviews over the years and has written what is apparently a very moving book called Song for Jenny. But when you read her story, you realize it's not as simple as saying she couldn't forgive or she lost her faith. There are clearly lots of issues, complex issues to take into consideration. But the reason I mentioned Julie Nicholson is because loving your enemy became a very raw challenge for her and her family. Very raw challenge. And there are countless other people and families who hear this teaching of Jesus and they hear it against a real backdrop of pain and loss. And therefore they find it very, very difficult. I also know there are some amazing stories of people who hit the headlines because they were able to forgive almost immediately as a result of their Christian faith. For example, who is this? Gordon Wilson, who lost his daughter Marie in the Enniskillen bomb, Remembrance Day, 1987. And his response to the bombing was, I bear no ill. I bear no grudge. And later he went on to say that he prayed for the men who did this. He prayed for them that night and he prayed for them every night. And his story became and still stands as an example of someone who loved his enemy. But as we approach this text tonight, I'm aware that this is tough. That you can't stand up here and you can't teach this into a vacuum. 
that for some people, and maybe some people here tonight, this is very personal. This is very close to the knuckle. This is very uncomfortable. And so let's get back to Luke 6. And by the way, I didn't tell those two stories as to somehow compromise the teaching of Jesus or to dilute it in any way. I just want to be upfront about the realities of this teaching and what we're dealing with. And I've no doubt, I've no doubt that as a result of what I say tonight, I'm going to raise more questions than provide answers. Because I can assure you, as I was sharing with the guys before, I have wrestled with this this week. But as we tease this out, let's start with the obvious question. Who are your enemies? Who are our enemies? I'm not sure who for you comes to mind or who comes into focus whenever we think in these terms. But in the space of two verses and in one sentence, Jesus defines enemies in three ways. He says they are those who hate you, those who curse you, and those who mistreat you. In other words, an enemy is someone who detests you, who wants to harm you, who wants to see you suffer in some way, whether that's physically, emotionally, socially. Someone with a malicious attitude who's prepared to hurt you and willing to follow through on that desire and intent. Back to Julie Nicholson, Gordon Wilson. It's unlikely that either of them would have ever described the people who killed their loved ones as their enemies. But based on this definition of Jesus, the bombers clearly fall into this category. An enemy is someone who hates you. Someone who curses you. Someone who mistreats you. It's someone who's hostile towards you. That for me kind of changes this. Because I kind of think to myself, hey, I don't have any enemies. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is there's people who hate me, potentially because of what I stand for. And at the minute, in our context, in our culture, as we wrestle with some very, very difficult issues from a Christian perspective, there are people out there who hate us. So how do we respond? We've got to love them we might describe them as our enemies they see us as their enemies implications of this are huge so how does jesus tell us to respond love your enemies but what does that actually look like because the love jesus talks about here is more than a feeling we're back to this word and this, this, this word love and what does it actually mean? It's not, a, it's not about emotions. It's active. It's costly. It involves an intentional decision to behave in a certain way. It starts with active love and maybe just maybe emotions will follow later but there's no guarantee they ever will. The natural reaction when someone hates you, curses you, mistreats you, what is it? It's retaliation. It's to seek revenge. It's to look for an opportunity to get back at them. Or at the very least, if it's not that, it's to bear a grudge. It's to allow your thoughts towards that person or those people to fester and to become increasingly negative and to hope that something rather kind of unfortunate or horrible happens to them. And so whenever we, we listen to what Jesus tells us to do, whenever we read how he commands us to respond, we are immediately confronted with just how radical and how revolutionary is discipleship. 
Now, Jesus doesn't tell, and, and please don't, don't miss me on this, Jesus doesn't tell anyone to cover up the abuse, to grin and bear whatever it is that we're going through, never to report it. Because obviously bullying, violence, man's inhumanity to man, hurt, malice, none of those things should ever be encouraged, tolerated, or swept under the carpet. That in itself would be madness and completely wrong. But there are three things that Jesus tells us to do as tangible and concrete expressions of love towards our enemies, towards those who hurt us, who curse us, who mistreat us. Three practices that model an altogether alternative countercultural Christ-like approach to dealing with those who come against you. Three things that save us from seeking and taking revenge. And again, they're here in these two verses. You do good to those who hate you. You bless those who curse you. You pray for those who mistreat you. And at face value, when you hear this, at least when I do, I just think it's ridiculous. It's unnatural. It's the complete opposite of what I want to do. It's the complete opposite of what everybody else is telling me to do. And yet there's also something about this teaching that intrigues and attracts because somehow we know that tit for tat only stirs things up. Retaliation only fuels the antagonism. Bitterness and negativity only damages everyone involved, including you, as the story from Les Mis proves. It eats away at you if you don't love, you don't forgive, you don't do good, you don't bless, you don't pray for it. It eats away at you, it consumes, it creates guilt, anxiety. You're always looking over your shoulder. The The reality is if you choose hate over love, it may destroy you. It may destroy you physically, emotionally, and above all, it will destroy you spiritually because hatred literally rots your soul. So how do you break free from the cycle, from this downward spiral that retaliation and revenge creates? Because Jesus not only wants us to be different, he knows what is best for us. He knows what characterizes the kingdom of God. And so he says, listen, you do good to those who hate you. Don't do bad. Why? Because it's far more likely to diffuse the conflict and the tension. Do good to those who hate you. It's an incredible command of Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Speak well of your enemies. Have a good word for those who don't have a good word for you. Choose your words carefully. That's why the Bible has lots to say about how we speak. How we speak generally, but how we speak about our enemies. My goodness. Proverbs twelve eighteen: Reckless words pierce like a sword. The tongue of the wise brings healing. How we speak about one another at the best of times, as I say, is a huge challenge. How you speak about your enemies takes it to a whole other level. Bless those who curse you. And finally, pray for those who mistreat you. Turn insult into intercession. Ask God to soften their hearts, to heal their hurts. Whenever you pray for someone, pray for mercy, pray for grace, pray for good, pray for hope. How you deal with them and how you speak to them next time after you've prayed for them will change. Guarantee it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. In prayer... We go to our enemies to stand at their side. 
We are with them, near them, for them, before God. Jesus does not promise us that the enemy we love, we bless, to whom we do good, will not abuse and persecute us. They will do so. But even in doing so, they cannot harm and conquer us if we take this last step to them in intercessory prayer. Can you imagine what life in our world and our community would be like if we actually embraced this? Can you? That if we actually did good towards those who hate us, and blessed those who curse us, and prayed for those who mistreat us, what would happen in our world, in our governments? Now, as Jesus continues, he adds another layer to the importance of of kind of not hitting back, of not retaliating whenever he says, to paraphrase verse 29, turn the other cheek. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that you invite further abuse. We We need to be so clear about this. That you keep encouraging more violence. There is an element of hyperbole here. In other words, the use of exaggeration to make a point. And Jesus used this technique time and time again. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Do we take that literally? No, of course you don't. The point is Jesus is wanting us to take sin seriously. To hate it that much. Now, I don't have time to deal with lots of other examples, but there's a definite sense of that here in Luke 6, of turning the other cheek. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's using hyperbole to highlight a concept that his his hearers are unlikely to miss other ways. And the point is this, don't retaliate. Don't hit back. Don't seek revenge. Instead, turn the other cheek. Choose a different way. Time is marching on. I've only done about two or three verses. In verse 31, you then come to this kind of abiding principle with all of this teaching. This has come to be known as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. See, most people want others to be kind and gracious towards them. And so the idea here is just be kind and gracious towards other people. That's how you want other people to act towards you. Act that way towards other people. Now, whenever those other people are those we like, that's not such a big deal. It's relatively easy to love and show kindness and be gracious towards your friends and your family. And Jesus touches on this in verse 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Anyone, any sinner can do that that's strong and so very quickly Jesus gets back to the real issue the real focus of his teaching and he says listen this is about loving your enemies here's the real test here's the big ask here's the core discipleship challenge and as he further urges his disciples and that includes you and I if we've chosen to follow him to be different to love our enemies Jesus then appears to give us a couple of reasons for doing it here are two motivators Here's why this is so important. To start with, have a look at this with me. Your reward will be great. 
Verse 35 reads, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, then your reward from heaven, as it says in the New Living Translation, will be great. And Jesus doesn't expand on this here. Doesn't actually explain what that means, but a promise from Jesus carries significant weight. And what he's saying is, listen, see if you walk this way, you'll be rewarded. Not necessarily by the recipients of your love here on earth. Your enemies won't thank you for it. Your enemies probably will not love you in return. You'll never win your enemies over. There's a good chance of that. Fact is, you choose to do good, to bless, to pray for. And someday, someday, your reward will be immense. Immense. Secondly, live like this. And you not only reveal your true identity. Because Jesus says here, see if you live like this, shows your children of the most high. Here's the litmus test. Here's how we discover who's who. But more than that, You will become more like your heavenly father. Verse 36. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. In Matthew's version, he actually says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Be merciful just as your father is. You know, God is generous to a fault. He's merciful beyond our wildest dreams. We don't deserve God's mercy. And Paul has really helped us to get to come to terms with that and what he has said and the songs he has asked us to sing. It's grace, his mercy, freely given. And never lose sight of the fact that Paul kind of alluded to this. Never lose sight of the fact that our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still enemies of God. He reached out to us in love. He reached out to us in grace. He reached out to us in kindness while we were still his enemies. So Jesus says, listen, you be merciful as your father is merciful. You reach out to people. You love people while they are still your enemies. And that kind of concludes the teaching of Jesus on this subject. But we've got to kind of take this. And as I said earlier, I realize raised lots of issues, said certain things, haven't said anywhere near enough. But as I wrap this up, please remember that Jesus didn't just teach this stuff. He lived it. He practiced what he preached. And so, for example, as his enemies beat the life out of him, and as they hung him on a cross... What was his response? Father, forgive him. Dare to be a disciple? Love your enemies then. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Don't retaliate. Don't hit back. Remember the golden rule? Even more importantly, remember your reward will be great. And you actually must be like this because your father is. It's huge.